Hello, and welcome to The Aura, a podcast that takes you inside and outside the work of art in discussion with those who create, curate, write, think about, and enjoy contemporary art. My name is Cheryl Sim, and I am curator and managing director of the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art in Montreal. Ed Atkins instrumentalizes high-definition video, a bodiless medium, to create works that have the ability to bring us back to our own corporeal humanity. Created entirely from computer-generated animation, his video works offer an aesthetic that unsettles our perception of what is alive and what is animated. Each work features a deeply affecting character who shares his most intimate emotions through gratuitously written monologues of existential longing and desperation, which are punctuated by pop song fragments, bodily sounds, intertitles, stock footage, and the character's occasions of bursting into song. Atkins was born in Oxford, England in 1982 and completed an MFA at the Slade School of Fine Art in London. He has exhibited at the Venice, Lyon, and Istanbul Biennials and has had major solo exhibitions at the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, and the Castello di Rivoli in Italy. In April of 2017, DHC Art presented Modern Piano Music, Atkins' first exhibition in Canada, which consisted of a suite of five large-scale video installations. During the intense install of his show, I was deeply grateful to be able to sit with him and talk about his work. Ed Atkins, thank you so much for sitting down to, to speak with, with me today. Total um, pleasure. I realize now that I, I saw your piece, the André Breton piece, mm. in ah, Venice yeah. first, and I was, wow. I was really taken by this interior yeah. of these objects going by. Yes. And, um, and then hadn't put it together when I saw ribbons in Paris in uh, uh, 2014. Yeah. It's like, yes, this is this is Ed Atkins. <laughs> They're very different things. It, it, I mean, conspicuously, yeah. at least visually. But I think, I don't know, there's a tenor that connects them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and now, of course, with having had the pleasure of, of really exploring uh, your work in, in greater depth, mm. I can appreciate those connections, yeah, that, right. co the, that coherence. Um, also, you know, I followed around, I saw Happy Birthday in New York, Hisser in Istanbul, where we finally met. Yes. And, and I kind of wore you down. I, <laughs> and <laughs> here you are. It wasn't that hard, was it? <laughs> <laughs> and here you are, finally. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Totally. Um, I thought we could talk a little bit about um, how your work deeply engages with a number of disciplines. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't hear or read much of you being referred to as an interdisciplinary artist, mm -hmm. but in a sense, that's what you do is sort yeah. of this work interdisciplinary, how you, you know, kind of marry all these things very seamlessly. And Hans Ulrich Obrist says this of you. <laughs> <laughs> He's a total artist. He's as much a writer as a singer as he is a visual artist. Ed is interested in transforming space and making an immersive experience, a work that appeals to all the senses. And like the idea of total artist being a kind of insult. <laughs> you total artist. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> well, I thought for yeah, this discussion no, we could delve. Super nice. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, it's. He's very it's, generous. Yeah. And and I and very sincere. Mm. Um, so perhaps you could delve into the many ways that your work gets into the senses. Sure. All right. Um, 
you grew up in Oxford, England. Mm -hmm. uh, your mother, a high school art teacher. Your father, a graphic designer in a publishing house. So you were quite immersed in in a creative environment. Yeah, up. very much. Um, I mean, both of them, I think, would probably better be called artists. Really, you know that their you know their day jobs were rewarding and attached to those things. But I think, well, rewarding with an asterisk. You know, I mean, they are just sort of the necessity of financial remuneration, I suppose. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. but really, they were both uh, fantastic draftspeople and um, uh, in love with literature and cinema and music. Music was a big thing, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, sort of steeped in it, mm -hmm. but not particularly art, art, you know. I think both of their particular excitements around the visual arts sort of probably stops around, <laughs> you know, sort of 1964 or something, I you see, know. Yeah. Like I think that contemporary art was, was anathema to us. Like we never... I didn't know what that meant mm -hmm. until I got to London, I think, mm -hmm. you know, really, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, because you went to, uh, you attended the Slade School of Fine Art, mm -hmm. and you weren't sure that you would, that you wanted to study art, and, mm. and you were more compelled by literature, cinema, yeah. music. Yeah. Um, so it seems like working in the um, video installation format has given you the freedom to reconcile all of these sort of deeper... Totally. I think I think for a long time I tried to be a more sort of quote unquote bona fide artist insofar as <laughs> yeah. like, surely I can. I mean, and I could always draw, you know, it's the, the sort of weirdness of the fact that most people who end up in art college got there because they were good at drawing at school mm. or something, you know, which is such potentially so different from what people end up making. But right. that's definitely true for me. But I think in the end, I didn't, I didn't really, I don't really understand, I didn't really understand art as a as a particularly affecting thing i didn't go to galleries and weep or something or, mm -hmm. or feel deeply excited until much later i think um before that obviously music and yeah and like you say literature and cinema and these things it was just really that art was probably the only space really and probably still is where mm -hmm. you're allowed to convene all of those things with the kind of the panache of amateurism really you know that you don't you know, because there isn't, particularly in, in the English art education thing, you're not really learning technical skills unless you want to. You can sign up for that stuff. And most of the time you're kind of, you're just given space and time, um, which for me was enough to catalyze the possibility of allowing myself to go to the things that I really loved and sort of give them the home within contemporary art discourse, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Um Thinking about the um, the work that you're making, uh, working in uh, computer-generated mm. animation, uh, sort of conceptually very uh, informed by the fact that it is a mm -hmm. medium without a body, mm -hmm. that it's binary codes, zeros yeah. and ones, um, that you have within this medium the freedom mm -hmm. to bring in all of these other elements, these other yeah. interests in a, in a, in a very singular, a very particular way. Yeah. Um, I guess it would be fun to unpack some of those elements. Sure. Um, the writing, the performance, the music, mm -hmm. the, the immersivity, also the cinematic languages, the mm. language of editing, editing mm -hmm. also being such a, um, a kind of curious, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. A, a sort of um, play that you have. So perhaps 
We could start with the writing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, perhaps you could share with us literary influences mm-hmm. because you're such a, um, a voracious sort of reader and writer. Less, less so now with less time, but, um, but definitely... Although I was never one of those kids that kind of devoured the whole library or something, you know. It was a very selective kind of... I think editing to include um, mm. a kind of... I think the thing that I inherited from my father and my brother did too, I think, is a kind of cultural um, editorializing, you know, a lot of reading critical stuff, weirdly, as as sort of, you know, maybe as young teens, everyone reads, like, buys all the music mags and the film mags and things, and you just sort of start to absorb the possibility of deciding things. But in terms of literature, I think, um, I, I mean, uh, I often say, I think my dad gave me a, a collection of Donald Barthelme short stories when I was like probably 13 or something, you know, just at the cusp of kind of probably uh, at school, the kind of the trudgery and the fatigue around uh, studying literature being dangerously close, I think, to kind of corrupting the possibility of remaining a reader in a way. And I think Mm. luckily my dad, particularly the house was just a library of, of stuff and, um, and he his interest was always novels predominantly in short mm-hmm. stories but but yeah donald bartholomew's kind of postmodern experimentalism the fact that every short story has a completely different tenor they're hilarious they're incredibly vernacular and mm-hmm. yet they're also kind of laced with ridiculous mannerisms from which sort of are siphoned i guess through uh, conspicuous modernist kind of works through Joyce or something like mm-hmm. that and um, uh, Beckett mm-hmm. I would say and both of those people less so Joyce because I'm just too impatient I think but <laughs> but Beckett definitely yes. you know those things yes. became hugely important also a kind of melancholy that would permeate through through I, I, first, I don't I've never really traced this but I I've always found uh, structure to be deeply moving, you know. Mm. The, so works and bits of cinema. So from sort of Godard through mm-hmm. through that kind of, I guess, mm, those things that show structure that they show how they're made mm. while they're also being mm-hmm. made. So they kind mm-hmm. of unpack themselves, reveal their workings, and at the same time, kind of continue to function somehow. Um, I always loved that, and you could feel. Donald Barthelme's pleasure in writing, you know, mm. the, the the joy of the structure of a sentence. I think of, I when I think of your work and how you use text, I think, and the feeling that it evokes, I think of the metaphysical poets. Mm-hmm. I think of like John Donne yes. and, and these people who totally. uh, just drive me to, you know, a kind of real precipice yeah. in, a, in, a, in a wonderful way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it is a kind of uh, consuming mm-hmm. uh, uh, joy, sadness yeah. that is kind of into longing that yeah. is um, irresistible somehow? I, I think it's also the, the, well, within that word, metaphysical, I suppose, is this kind of idea of um, the incredibly imminently material thing mm. and then a kind of spiritual or emotional, or uh, well, yeah, a connection. I don't really remember ever, like, obsessing over it, but I'm, I mean, that stuff is sort of so canonical and... Uh, mm. um, and that, you know, I guess one of his most famous things is the, the flea. You know, mm-hmm. this, where where the flea is kind of interlocutor of two lovers, but you know, so sucking their blood and their blood mingling inside the flea. There's something so oh. you know, it's extraordinary kind <laughs> yeah. of um, 
yeah, it's the visceral. ultimate, yeah, sort of like the consuming yeah. of the other because yeah. you love them so much. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's also, I mean, it's deeply erotic. It's yes. kind of like a, such a charged and, and deeply, yeah, material, I, mm-hmm. I suppose, that mm-hmm. the body um, mm-hmm. and substantive. I think whatever kind of contributing factors, for me, we're always a kind of sense of humor in our family that was quite mm-hmm. scatological, <laughs> quite sort of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, to this day, kind of deeply absurd. And I think that, that there's a kind of very British absurdity, um, which I guess more internationally might be sort of thought as surrealistic in some way, but I think very British sort of um, weird mm-hmm. uh, humour, which is also a bit sort of bluntly base and rude. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think, yeah, of course. So that kind of metaphysical turn, I suppose. And um, yet, um, I mean, it... it there's a lot of uh, coherence with what you're saying about enjoying mm. uh, literature that also makes reference to its form. Yes, um, and you do that too yeah. with uh, with your use of of technology. Totally, I suppose there's maybe there's some sort of, I guess for most kind of structural writers and things, it's not necessarily true. But I think for me, there was always a feeling of a kind of ethical point somehow to uh to not allowing something to be just transparent to be uh-huh. to be a sort of portal that you don't actually notice that you know i suppose but for, for for most people in most situations i suppose that maybe things like literature or cinema or music you're not really you you don't really focus on the thing you focus through them to their subject or to their content or something but so when you encounter some writing that is talking about the thing in your hands or the writer at the desk you know the the, the whole sort of scene pans back and you see the the, the kind of fakery of the stage or something right. love that feeling i mean it's the feeling of footnotes it's the feeling of mm. marginalia and uh and of paper i mean mm-hmm. it's probably no coincidence that my father was a, mm-hmm. a graphic designer for Publishing poetry books house, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um so that yeah the feeling of of the weight of a book is still for me deeply important but as is the experience of being sort of returned to your seat when watching i remember talking talking to a friend recently about goddard mm. and i think and he was talking about a scene in maybe it's in masculine and feminine or something like that or mm-hmm. Um, where the sound shuts off. Um, I think they're, they're talking to characters, and, and while in the cinema, seeing the sound shut off and knowing that it's intentional, but knowing that it's also a break, that it's a thing that puts you back in your seat and, and cleaves to your attention in this right. extraordinary way where you're kind of stunned into uh, presence, I mm-hmm. suppose. Absolutely. That it's a, but that it, it's sort of catalyzed by, by a wrongness you know, but by almost mistake. So uh, in literature, I suppose that's achieved by either a kind of a shift of voice or a shift of tone or or even better, a kind of um, something that, that completely dissipates that, you know, it's the equivalent of it was all a dream or something, but much more heavy handed, much mm-hmm. more sort of violent in some mm-hmm. way, like a cut. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I want to jump right into, mm. you know, sort of uh, cinematic cues and the language of editing, but Perhaps I could bring you back to the importance of of paper or the mm. significance of of an object uh, that is inscribed it, it, that becomes materially mm. based, and about um, kind of the book being the best 
and the oldest, perhaps, technology mm-hmm. that that has survived at the test of time, sure. even with um, you know the advent of e-readers yeah. and Kindles and, and electronic books. Well, until those things uh, smell, or until those things <laughs> have a real you know bespoke texture that they can emulate or whatever, or you can say, I wanted this to weigh three hundred grams or something, and then you know, like all of those things. Which all would also just be kind of apologies for the analog's absence or something. Mm-hmm, I right, think there's something right. about books that they're they're both wieldy and unwieldy, and they're kind of you know um, intimate uh, sensory sort of things that also get they they're indexical. You know, mm. I remember throwing up on a big pile of books next to my bed when I was <laughs> kind of like like sixteen or something, and then sort of hosing them down outside in the garden and oh, leaving them out in the yeah. sun and then they all sort of buckle into yep. these <laughs> like a huge concertinas um, of, <laughs> of still legible but impossible to hold things um, anyway but, but you know like that that they are they're sort of unbreakable things well, yes. you know, books that are kind of inscribed and covered mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. mistakes and messes and annotations and things I mean, it's I, it's very hard to imagine those things ever becoming right, not going away. deeply personally important. Mm-hmm. Also, that you can take them. Yes. I mean, the, I was saying the other day, but the book that I've just sort of published is yes, a primer for cadavers. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> is uh, um, is the thing I'm sort of most proud of, weirdly, because mm-hmm. because there's a permanence about a book. I think, and also, yeah, I think for anyone you grew up in a house of books, and there are things in there that are published. 120 years ago or something mm-hmm. I mean and, and the feeling not that necessarily a contemporary paperback will last that long but that it it might you know and uh, just to see it change over time to have a kind of um, material equivalence with a thing with you and your mm-hmm. thing your body mm-hmm. it's kind of it's still amazing I think it is and and to have the capacity to uh, really physically engage with your book like mm. by underlining passages oh God, yeah. or I don't know, dog-earing a page. And so you could just come back to it. And, and yeah. this, this attachment to, you know, the books that you keep in your library that, you know, are just reassuring because of their presence, because Completely. they're there. Yeah. Mm. I think it's, I feel like that with, I mean, most things. It's also the case that I think even in such conspicuously digital times, we are still emulating the analog to such a degree to kind of reassure ourselves. Right. So so there are still within softwares and things that, you know, our sort of, our agreement, our tacit agreement about the quality of something. Um, yeah, just that, that um, I think the digital stuff, a sort of litmus test for agreeing that it's good mm-hmm. or is how close it is at emulating deeply material reality or even emulating the errors of analog technology, you know, lens flares and blurs and whatever, you know, that those are our, still our conditions for for something being allowed to be affecting. Right. Um, somehow, when you're watching it, when you're looking at a video game or something, you know. Speaking of affecting, hmm. um, perhaps we can talk a little bit about about performance mm-hmm. and the fact that you, you lend your voice mm. and your gestures, your facial expressions to the... Um, surrogates mm-hmm. in each piece, and surrogates makes it a, uh, creates a, a whole host of um, thoughts around mm. how much is it 
you? How much is it not you? And of mm-hmm. course, it, it makes me think about, you know, the death of the author and, mm-hmm. and how, you know, we, we really need to um, sort of uh, separate yeah. these, these subjectivities. So how do you approach your performance of these surrogates yeah. in your work? I think surrogate became a kind of good alternative to Avatar. Well, for one reason, the Avatar is so sort of overused now, um, I guess, because of the movie and everything else. Mm-hmm. But but surrogate also has this kind of slight sort of, um, you know, uh, edge of a kind of moral or ethical. There's a moment in it, you know, because surrogacy seems to engage a political history or, or engage a, yeah, a legal and, and yes. intimate sort of history. Yes. Um, and But also like a surrogate is something that goes through something in your stead that's not necessarily a costume or a... Yeah, an avatar in some way, but that it is, you know, as in it's not me, but it's something that I can use rather brutally to do things that I wouldn't want to go through, and I certainly wouldn't want to put someone else through. I mean, I guess in, in relation to me, there's necessarily a big slew of autobiographical something in it, but that might, at most points, that would be, I guess, physical or appearance wise or also generically you know like okay you know that's that's uh so genre plays a big part in the whole in all of the videos really as a sort of way to assure people's fluency with something or how people presume to read things Mm -hmm. i suppose um i i know in earlier works you never you you've always you're filming the back of, of people's heads yeah a sort of um uh uh discomfort with filming faces yeah. and kind of um, invading people's private space, perhaps, totally. and so is using your voice. It would seem as as a way to sidestep having to ask other people hmm. to, you know, sort of perform what might be uncomfortable for them. Completely, completely. I mean, um, there's a kind of cowardice in that, in, insofar as like easier to not ask someone else and not have to go through that. So just deal with your own shit, I suppose. But then. <laughs> I think that, that that kind of quandary about showing people's faces in the early stuff was always like uh, also not wanting um, not wanting transcendent content in a way. And I think someone's face is you're kind of immediately given character and the idea of a real person and stuff. Whereas I really wanted to hold on to uh, structure and almost like a sort of stock of like a tree would just be a tree and not that tree in that garden or this kind of tree or the sun is just the sun. Everything is reduced to a sort of um, potential, potential value, I suppose. And I guess the back of a head was always like the most loaded mm. thing I could imagine, mm-hmm. it, particularly if it doesn't turn around, you know, that it's kind of this, this incredibly weighted um, thing um, that promises uh, a kind of escape from its own physicality with the with, with the face on the other side, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, using my own, using myself to sort of to be captured. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I can't remember where this a lot of this sort of stuff started from. I think some bits of Blanchot and bits of mm-hmm. bits of French theory, I guess, around mm-hmm. um, structure, but also around a kind of ethical turn around thinking about capturing in the image and photography, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to you know, and the language around computer-generated animation and stuff is so conspicuously uh, 
Well, it's inherited from film, I suppose. Yeah. But that that in turn is inherited from a a very analog thing, which is therefore inherited, you know, like, so the the kind of uh, the history of a lexicon around computer-generated imagery is so incredibly material, so Mm -hmm. capturing, um, rendering. So I guess the, the thing of using myself in a way is, is there's a lot of things there. I think it's like, mm-hmm. there's a kind of monomaniacal aspect to it. I think it's, you know, cause in the CGI world, you can control everything, you know, you can kind of precisely time and place and condition it. You know, you don't have to deal with the, the kind of in, inconsistencies and, and rebellions of the world in a way, but also, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know how to ask other people to do things, you know, because I didn't really know what I was doing either. And I still don't really, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of kind of searching and groping and sort of trying things out, which I have a a sort of faint memory of asking an actor friend to try reading some of the writing and stuff, but there was no way of directing it, you know, because I I feel like the works are so completely sort of self-contained or that I understand them only in as much as I have to. And it's only when they're when they're finished that I want any any other sort of thing to come in. I suppose. Again, I think it's probably a, a protectionist thing. I mean, I should probably start working with other people more conspicuously. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely up until now, it's been about. I don't mind. It's also like I don't mind staying up until God knows when, or I don't mind. Right. Uh, weeping, or I don't. You know, like I don't. I mean, I do mind those things, but my minding is not the same as. Mm-hmm. asking someone else to suffer with me or to be employed by me or or in fact to have any responsibility for another person outside of within my des- within my desire i suppose right i don't really know where i'm going with this but no, you know I, that kind of it would seem that you're willing to um kind of reach into your i guess deep subconscious mm-hmm. for for this work and to let it issue through your voice mm-hmm. um how do you explain someone else to do that yeah it's impossible. It's also that, you know, my voice in the videos is the only thing that really goes unchanged. You know, there's no filters on it and there's nothing. Right. Um, yeah. So I suppose there is a, there's something particular about the voice as well as a kind of, I do remember being obsessed by ventriloquist dummies. I was seeing this very old Ealing portmanteau horror film called The Dead of Night. And in it, there's a series of short, short, short films, each directed by a different director as if characters have told these horror stories around a fire in a, an old sort of country house on a dark, windy night. And one of them involves a, a dummy that escapes its ventriloquist and kills people at night. And it's called Hugo Fitch in the thing. And I, I've, I bought a dummy and called it Hugo, which is such a stupid thing to do. And I had to sort of lock it in Are a cupboard. Are you crazy? Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I was totally obsessed. And I suppose that throwing your voice, you know, yes. that even the phrase is such an extraordinary kind of... It's also so completely... Uh, attached to possession, to mm-hmm. a kind of violent, um, like if there's one attribute that you would probably, well, with some people you would place character within its voice, you know, there's something, it's also the one thing that is uniquely mine that exists outside of me, that travels around and lands in people's heads and <laughs> and down microphones and things. So it's it, there's some particular peculiar intimacy about voice as well I think that yes. um, yeah it can, it's um it really is this the signature of, of the individual yeah um and and it 
links also sort of this interest in ventriloquy and mm. sort of animating this mm -hmm. this kind of piece of wood Oof, yeah. is very much in keeping with how your voice animates this otherwise kind of lifeless yeah yeah um, character or yeah. or non-entity until that voice comes through then it's sort of animated mm -hmm. but then this then it's possessed or whatever <laughs> right. right you know right. like it's then it's something way weirder i mm -hmm. suppose mm -hmm. to feel suddenly that there's a person behind it i mean i feel similarly about albeit very differently but but, but the kind of uh, facial motion capture stuff which is kind of pretty primitive um um, processes that I use, you know, I mean, it's not, I'm not a professional anything, you know, <laughs> I'm just a sort of merry amateur prosumer, I guess. <laughs> but the, but the, yeah, so the, the face, you know, those things that I guess they're sites of, uh, there are interaction with other people. I don't know, there's some very base thing that I, I should probably one day fully go into, uh, about the voice that requires me to not break it you know I think mm. I did I tried to cover it up in very early works by pushing it down or right. speeding it up or something but actually it's, it's always best when it's just undoctored it's authentic thing. it's a yeah. kind of uh, and of course the singing voice hmm. which you also lend mm, yeah. uh, very candidly <laughs> to each of your works is a is a very I would say the most vulnerable yeah. use of voice and and the, and you kind of give that so willingly yeah. and generously through oh, these but characters. I, love I mean, it's it's a combination of things, right? So it's the, it's the, got the all the kind of manipulative emotional heft of music generally, <laughs> right. you know, but also with that kind of presumptuous intimacy of the voice, and then also the amateur kind of karaoke like you know if you watch people probably a bit drunk doing their karaoke when they really mean it and it's not just a sort of mm. piss take for their mates <laughs> it's like it's almost unwatchable right. and i mean that in the best way yes. it's sort of just too much it's like mm -hmm. you're singing into them because this song is their song and yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh yeah that stuff is amazing so sort of i guess trying to channel a bit to that stuff it was also just like can i add another thing that i really like doing <laughs> like i really like singing stuff so yeah. i mean not for anyone and it's not but uh you know like in the kind of holistic aspect of the videos it right. seemed opposite that i would suddenly break into song <laughs> yes it's the breaking into exactly. as well that was always like that's the only i mean once the song started in a musical mm -hmm. i'll skip it and it may mm -hmm. be but it's the point where the kind of that lurch or segue into the world of the musical where suddenly, you know, people are... It can be natural. It can be extremely <laughs> awkward. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, here we go. It's yeah. a song now. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but the way you do it is very, uh, it's it's very jarring and wonderful mm. at the same time. And it, and it has Thank a lot you. to do with how you use um, sort of cinematic cues. Mm -hmm. um, but just maybe also let's talk a bit about music because yeah, sure. song fragments um and the way you you cut them and cut them in mm. is uh also i find a really compelling aspect about the work a very curious aspect mm -hmm. of the work um that you use pop song that you use sacred music mm -hmm. all these different styles and genres is something um, i would like to know more about mm -hmm. i mean how do you go about what brings you to a song how do you select one and mm. and then how do you use it and what informs how you want to mm. use it? This particular little fragment sort of that may loop around or... I think it's, uh, there's not much logic to it beyond 
things that I get obsessed with. So most of the music that ends up in the videos are things that I, or maybe there's one or two that are kind of currently the things that I'm obsessed with, you know, and that I, I recognize are potentially deeply affecting things. Um, or, or, or otherwise it's, um, so there's that. I, I mm -hmm. suppose that's a kind of bed of mm -hmm. music potentially. But the songs also, there's a, there's a whole criteria which is around the kind of functioning of a lot of the aesthetics of the videos is that that of sort of genericness or of over-familiarity. Mm -hmm. um, when, when, when things are, have reached a sort of point of cultural ubiquity that they are suddenly useless or they are, you don't even see them anymore. They're just sort of part of the texture of car adverts and, 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 uh, and 1986 or whatever, you know, like they are, they kind of, they're just sort of, permanently fossilized within the, yes. <laughs> the consciousness. Um, so I remember the first time I made a f video a while ago called A Tumor in English, and it features um, everything I do, the Brian Adams song, which, you know, I think, I think, I think I recorded off the radio when I was a kid, and it used to make me cry, you know, I sort of, yeah, go mental for that This is the song thing. that was in part of the Robin Hood soundtrack, oh, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. So I was obsessed with that film. <laughs> and I was obsessed with the idea of love in that film and with <laughs> that song. Oh, wow. Um, anyway, but, but, but it's also like that song, for most people on the planet, is an irritating horror, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of like songs that sit on that cusp. Right. So having the refrain from that uh, repeated in this video, which... It's almost like it's, it's sort of Pavlovian, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for a lot of people they hear yeah, a sort totally. of dun, 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 this series of sort of notes on a piano. It's like, oh, Jesus, here it comes, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, and the same with an Ace of Bass song for right. a later thing, The Sign, which I think genuinely is an amazing song <laughs> and so on and so forth. And up until, so in the show here, we've got uh, this piece called Safe Conduct that has the bolero Pretty much undoctored, really. Right. It's um, in, yeah. The entire thing from beginning. It's to a end, little. Yeah? I've I've cheated it just a little okay, bit, but well, it's you know a little bit of a. <laughs> but it's um, uh, yeah. That I mean that's that piece is sort of so familiar mm -hmm. to people who've been around for more than three years. I, I guess you know. <laughs> I mean, it's impossible to avoid knowing that thing. It's also an amazing piece. I mean, I genuinely think it's an extraordinary it's piece one of, of music. Yeah, it's one of the ones that, despite the fact that it is ubiquitous yeah. and it and it and it is such a familiar melody, it still gets me every single time. It's amazing, isn't it? So all of these sort yeah. of cultural cues come through the music, and then in and then mingle yeah. and entangle with what it is that you're bringing to us visually yes. and with these. Um, sort of texts, text bits and, mm -hmm. and intertitles. Yeah. Um, it sort of doubles down on the artifice of the thing in a way. Right. You know, the, the, I think music is our kind of cue most of the time in cinema, say, to know how to feel. Like, mm. how am I, you know, we know how to read the music. Um, it's again, it's a genre thing, I guess, but it's, um, particularly if it's not a sort of modernist discord, there is a kind of, immediacy to like, oh, major key, minor key, you right. know, all of the, and climactic sort of, you know, they sort of give us the superstructure mm -hmm. of the narrative or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, although if you're using bits of it like me, then it sort of breaks well, a lot. Maybe, maybe <laughs> that's a good moment to, to um, elaborate a little bit about 
the language of editing mm. and what um, phrases you take mm-hmm. and how uh, you use that in a discordant way. Mm-hmm. This also how music is is sort of like an, almost an anti cue in, mm. in 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 your usage. Yeah. Um, yes, lens flares, all these yeah, things yeah. that bring us back to kind of analog film, mm-hmm. but, you know, sort of reproduced. I mean, I know I, I edit video too sometimes yeah, yeah. and I see all these filters that you can use yeah, to yeah. emulate actual it's film. It's funny, isn't it? It's that, that, that whole thing is is kind of it. I mean, I, I also think that editing, I suppose there's a, you know, there's an idea of correct editing to achieve X, you know, and, and maybe... You, most things that you would watch, bits of cinema or whatever, are deliberately trying to. You're not supposed to notice the edit. You're just right. you go with it, and it's, you know, it's it's considered successful because it's sort of the process of editing of camera angles of of the whole the whole massive sort of scaffold it disappears to at at the behest of the narrative or the behest of whatever. But for me, editing is a kind of it's a it's a meter. It's like a mm. rhythmic thing. Mm. And I don't mean it necessarily in the kind of Walter Murch sort of blink of an eye stuff, but I mean it in the kind of syncopation of a, like an irritability or something. Um, so it's it's often, the, the editing is often very musical, but it's mm-hmm. often sort of almost syntactical. It kind of has like um, the abruptness of a kind of a bit of prosody or something or, or um, the kind of breaks and line breaks of poetry i suppose yes. certain certain kinds of poetry yeah. and similarly like yeah just i suppose the jump cut would be mm-hmm. kind of like the big one in a way yeah. um as a kind of like weren't we going there no we're, we're right. suddenly here and right. I, I, again that's a kind of i guess probably from a kind of literary trope of bathos you know this sort of idea of a kind of transcendent romanticism heading towards the cosmos and a kind of you know the flecked mm. night sky or something mm-hmm. and then you suddenly you're in the toilet you know or you're suddenly someone just they yeah. fart or whatever you know yeah. and it's like a <laughs> that that kind of editing editing as interruption yes as a, a, a an incohering device in a way something that that doesn't want to disappear that wants to constantly affirm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that to assert not itself but but being used as a thing to kind of uh, curtail uh, drifting off into a kind That's of it. suspension of disbelief about whatever you right. know that it's constantly it's like a another underscore or another yes. crossing out or just a stop which again is an analog thing I, I suppose I think of error as a um, a sort of revenge of not to be too dualistic about it but revenge of the body um, you know and I mean it's sort of hackneyed to say and I'm sure I say it all the time, but like, you don't really know you have legs until they go wrong, you know, because they're not meant to be noticed all the time. So necessarily the videos are kind of engaging with a wrongness all the time. And the very fact that they affirm a kind of physical something is a way that they also disaffirm themselves, you know, because they are not Mm. physical. Um, Perhaps... um we could hear from you a little bit about how you have approached this show at DHCR mm. and um, the, you know, the spaces mm-hmm. and and immersivity. Yeah. That installation allows you to consider bodies moving in space. Yes, totally. Um, 
it's kind of like the apex of of things I've been rehearsing for a while. I guess it's kind of like the the chance to really try out the whole gamut, really, of of ways of thinking about this. I mean, in the first building, mm-hmm. um, there's uh, each each of the floors. I guess when we were first walking around, it was kind of apparent that they're more or less the same there's a, right. some exceptions and bits of movement and stuff but as a sort of first time viewer you're kind of struck by all right okay you know the familiarity of each space which is already like a um if you like you could kind of think about that as a bit like uh a lulling mm-hmm. process as well you know mm-hmm. that, 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 that i th- i don't know for me it's a kind of like familiarity is such a kind of steady factor and it's the easiest thing to break you know right. <laughs> just make something alien mm-hmm. so um the way that the videos are all pretty much all installed mm-hmm. in that building are on chunks of screen that are thicker than wall you know like yeah. they're really they're sort of so heavy they're all mm-hmm. on the floor they're all bulky and uh, one of them is leaning against the wall you know they're, they're all constantly describing and they are being physical things you right. know thick and dumb yeah. and and gravita- <laughs> gravitational well, no, you know? they're entities to be reckoned with absolutely you know, as, yes. a, as, a, as a person moving around in that space yeah. you're kind of confronted by this yes the sculptural forms as yeah. well I mean you know I suppose I, I hesitate to call them that because I think of walls more like or architecture you know that, mm-hmm. so one of them um, is kind of horrendously small you know like a sort of doll's house what's that why okay <laughs> yeah right. you know like the kind of I guess a lot of the logic of a projection and of yes. um, certainly an art installed video is I guess a kind of grandiloquence and a, mm-hmm. and a sort of like you know and the plasticity of a projection means you can have it the size of a building if you like whatever right mm-hmm. but uh, but I kind of wanted them so most of the videos are in the same spot on each on each floor. floor there's one piece that gets repeated uh which is a kind of con- condition of the work really um i mean i could talk about this piece called hissa basically which which kind of deals in uh repetition mm-hmm. looping Loops. homogeneity uh, you know a lot of rather sad uh purgatorial kind mm-hmm. of things you know anyway but it, in its first iteration it's sort of shriveled and small or or sort of juvenile right. as it were you know? <laughs> um, but also stolid like a sort of fat toddler right and then when you re-encounter it later it's a kind of swooning boozy <laughs> teen, teen. <laughs> I guess I, I mean I would never go higher than teen for any of it because I think it's I think the whole thing is mired in adolescence really but um, that's a whole other conversation but <laughs> but I think yeah so, so I, and there's nowhere to conspicuously nowhere to sit there's no sort right. of you know i suppose if if the cinema experience is kind of predicated on something it's about a kind of out of body thing so you mm-hmm. sit you settle into your your seat and you lean back and you let it sort of happen right. at you whereas i think the 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 gallery situation which i, I guess is probably why some people hate it is the kind of what do i do with myself mm-hmm. in, in the presence of this mm-hmm. thing i mean the the videos are all they're all made for shown showing in a gallery space they're not made to be seen on a laptop or in a cinema the way that they flicker with it with their own attention and their own inattention i suppose is about their encounter in that space you know um and and the music the sound the surround sound the kind of the thump and 
squad-driven sub bass and stuff is very, you know, very physical again. You know, so you're constantly sort of um, feeling the work in terms other than just sort of um, mm. watching it and, mm -hmm. and, and seeing it. You know, also where to stand, how to be with it, how close to get. You know, using these ultra short throw lenses has been amazing because you know people can sidle right up to the the projection. Yeah, and and also actually wanting to kind of maintain each room's, you know, the the mm. room. You know, so right. that it's very. It became important that we we allow Montreal in in a way. So windows being covered in a in a sort of semi-transparent film to block out the light, but in a way that you can still look past the video and see the street outside. And these two worlds would mix. You know that that you were sort of that there is a threshold here. You know that these on the front of these walls in this sort of full bleed projections is a look into this other space. You know, uh, a space that is constantly trying very hard to be convincingly material and physical and stuff and yet fails miserably <laughs> um, in this situation which is another kind of modeling of reality and and presence and here-ness you know and then out the window is an, is the other one is the rest of everything you know albeit filtered through this strange sort of distancing shade so yeah I mean that, that and then in the other space um uh, the two sort of big works, uh, Ribbons and Safe Conduct. And Ribbons is almost labyrinthine kind of um, negotiation between these freestanding walls. Actually walking through it the other day, it's got the sort of distinct feeling of a ruin or something, mm. you know. And then the protagonist on each of these screens, the big sort of uh, musical numbers in that one. Not big, but there are musical <laughs> numbers in that one. And then, yeah, and the, and the, and, and the finale of finale i call it the finale because it kind of has to be right yes because you know? <laughs> it's the bolero it's a safe conduct which is the most sort of um extraordinary sort of av installation i've ever when i saw it in new york yeah. in in uh in the gavin brown gallery in harlem it i there was many things well, i mean first of all because there's sort of these absurd send-ups of mm. airport security oh, videos yeah. there was the uh sort of the feeling of being dwarfed in an airport yes. by sort of the monitors yeah. Yeah, the yeah. information monitors but then there was also like a jumbotron rock concert yeah. Yeah. moment as well but uh in 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 that experience and i think um very much the experience here yeah. is being reminded of our we're kind of dwarfed by yes. these things that are kind of impossibly hanging down yeah. you know, at this at this very this um uh, sort of destabilizing angle mm -hmm. um combined all you know so the so the physicality of of the setup of the work combined with the you know the the, the bolero mm. you know relentless kind of snare mm -hmm. uh, pattern and and the and the just the images that you've brought to us kind of create this dizzying yeah. effect. Yeah, yeah. The levels of absurdity in that thing. I mean, it's I guess in a way it's the most sort of of a place piece I've ever made insofar as you know airports, right. uh, airplanes. But albeit, yeah, but they're, they're kind of, you know, like the airport is kind of weirdly theatricalized and there's some really absurd stuff going on. I mean, what you're required to put in the tray, I suppose, yes. before you go through security. Yes. I mean, it's sort of, it's grotesque, you know. And then the Bolero just kind of driving that. I don't know, to me it feels like the, like such a kind of distilled, I'm happy with this work because it, 
it's sort of it's the bluntest object I've made in a way, but it's also the most sort of communicative somehow. I think, but I, th I mean, it's important that you know, like in all of the spaces, to have the sound loud and big and mm. uh, and defining space and putting you in it. You know, it's a, <laughs> it really does um, you know hit us on on all of these sensory levels. Mm, yeah. I just need some sort of plug-in scent or something. Like <laughs> yeah. Incense. In there, you know. Next level. Yeah. It's like something, and every yeah. invigilator just sort of strokes you as you walk past. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, you know, I mean, immersive is, is, is still a word that kind of makes me wince because it seems to have become attached to sort of VR and right. things, you know, which right. um, to my mind are precisely the opposite. You know, that that's how you feel repelled in some way. Which isn't necessarily the thing to say right now, but uh, but I but you know just just personally I kind of like immersion is a kind of um, a, a presentness. It's a being here right. now kind of feeling, um, particularly in the face of things that are sort of spinning and pirouetting in in sort of spectacularized ways. The kind of mortal, um, fallible, and gorgeous and sort of intimate sensation of being close to bodies and in the world and sort of whatever that relation compels or something uh that's immersion i think you know i i tend to agree with you <laughs> <laughs> ed thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me today and um uh we we really appreciate having you here in montreal thank it's you so much thank you Thank you for listening to The Aura. This podcast was conceived by the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art and produced and recorded at the Phi Center in Montreal.